So if you guys remember last week, um, we were talking a little bit about how often Paul and other New Testament writers talk about the Christian life as a race. And that's why all sorts of times in the Bible, people use athletic language to describe the Christian life because it's like a race. Paul explained it last week with this phrase, press on. The Christian life is like a race because you need to keep moving forward with purpose, with discipline, with enthusiasm, and with hope. And if you guys remember from last time, the reason that we can do that, the motivation we have, is that our future is secure in Christ. Our future is secure in Christ. Um, Now, as we move on to the last section of Paul explaining knowing Jesus, you might call last week Paul's offensive game plan for the Christian life. This is what you have to do if you're on a sports team. There's usually an offense and a defense. The offense is supposed to move the action of the game forward, and the defense is supposed to protect your side of the field from intruders. Offense and defense. Last week, Paul explained the offense of the Christian life. And this week, you might say Paul moves on to the second part, which is the defense Paul is going to talk about the defense of the Christian life because living for Christ isn't just about moving forward. Living for Christ also involves staying stable, staying consistent, being steadfast, never giving up ground to the opposition, remaining strong in the face of incoming temptations and competitive worldviews. And just like Paul had a phrase for his offensive strategy, which was pressing on, Paul has a phrase for his defensive strategy, and it's the phrase you see in chapter 4, verse 1, where he says, stand firm. The last part of knowing Christ that you need to understand is that you need to stand firm thus in the Lord. That's our defense. And it's kind of ironic that we're talking about athletic language because, as many of you know, on Sunday is the Super Bowl. Raise your hand if you plan on watching the Super Bowl. All right, now keep your hand raised if that's because you like football. Okay, so there's more hesitation I see on people's faces, not necessarily the hands. And I get it because I'm actually the same. I think the Super Bowl is really fascinating, but as far as it goes with football, I know almost nothing about football. And the men laugh at me, and that is kind of appropriate. I know almost nothing about football, but one thing that I do know about football is that defense is important. And I don't know that from watching football. I don't even know that from talking to football fans. I know that because one of my favorite movies of all time is Remember the Titans. It's an amazing movie. It's about um, a school that is one of the first schools in America to integrate black and white students together. And it's the story of a football team that is forced to integrate and the two coaches, one black and one white, who helps the team get along and then to prove that their team is great, is better than other state schools to show a stand against racism. And it's a great movie. And the reason I know about defense is that one of the things, besides how wicked and ridiculous racism is, One of the other things that I learned from this movie is that defense is important. And the reason I knew that is because two of the main characters in the movie are on the defensive line. And in a later scene in the movie, a very climactic scene, um, there is a place in which the team needs to win a very important game to move to the finals. But the problem is that the school board, which is racist, wants their team to lose and therefore they can fire the African-American coach. And so what they do is they pay the refs to start calling penalties 
on the offensive line. And so what happens is it comes down to the defense to take a stand. And when they line up and when they have to uh, stand firm and be able to not let the opposing team get points, it's an incredibly emotional point in the movie. And the reason is not just because they're trying to win a football game. It's because of the attitude of the people against them. They don't just hate them on a competitive level. They hate them on a physical level. They hate them even on a spiritual level. And therefore, knowing how insanely important this moment is for the defense, the coach gathers the defense, sits them down, and passionately tells them in a really awesome monologue, I don't want them to gain another yard. I don't want you to give up even one tiny little step forward to these people. And the reason I'm recalling that is because of how emotional that moment was. And it's the exact same kind of emotion that Paul has in our section when he talks about the Philippians playing spiritual defense. I want all of you to look at chapter 4, verse 1. Look at that verse and look at the language that Paul uses. He says, therefore, my brothers. In verse 17, that's how he begins as well. My brothers, he says, I'm not talking to you as friends. I'm talking to you as family in Christ. And then he says, I love you and I long for you. Remember, Paul is in prison and he says, I miss you. I wish I could tell you this in person. I wish I could see you face to face, eye to eye to tell you how important this is. And then he says, you are my joy and my crown. And what he means by saying that is, not only do you give me great joy, great delight, but one day, if you are in Christ, one of my greatest praises in heaven is going to be knowing that I helped you make it here. You are my crown. You are my greatest desire. You are my greatest trophy in the Christian faith. And then he says, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. One more time, I love you because God loves you and I love you. And the question you should ask when you see all of that emotional language is ask yourself the question, why is Paul being so emotional? Because it's not an accident. And the reason Paul is so emotional is because he doesn't want anyone, not the Philippians and not any other Christian, he doesn't want anyone to give up on the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. And the reason he's so emotional is because if anyone gives up the surpassing worth of knowing Christ... They give it up for something worthless in comparison. Paul understands that worthless things can seem appealing. Many people that Paul knows have left Christ and they've gone after worthless things. Earlier in one of the New Testament letters, Paul says that one of his friends' name is Demas and that Demas is a helpful helper to him in the gospel ministry. But in one of Paul's last letters, he brings up Demas again, and he says, Demas has left me because he loves this world. And in Paul's last letter, in his last chapter of his last letter, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul actually gives a list of all sorts of, all manner of friends who have abandoned him. Paul's experienced pain and betrayal and abandonment But he wasn't sad because he was personally offended. He was sad because these people have settled for so much less than what God designed for them. 
And so Paul, when he sums up knowing Christ, he wants to give us a battle plan to stand firm in the Lord so that every Christian reading this can put their spiritual cleats on, to put their feet deep into the ground upon Christ and his cross so that they persevere, resist, refuse to fall, would never give in, would never give up, would never back down, they would stand firm. And if you don't like sports analogies, here's a plant analogy. It's not just about getting in the right soil. It's about making sure your roots run deep. That you wouldn't be moved by anything that would take you away from Christ. Now, you might remember last week when we covered pressing on, Paul had a twofold argument for how he was going to explain how you press on. The first thing he did was he gave us a reason to press on. You might remember in verse 13, he said, Jesus made me his own. And that's why I can press on. And then he followed up with a strategy after that. He said, you have to forget what lies behind, and then you have to lean forward to what lies ahead, forgetting what's behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. So Paul gave a reason and then a strategy. This week with standing firm, Paul does the opposite. He gives a strategy and then a reason. Paul's going to give us a strategy. It's something that should start changing our perspective, reminding us how to live and how to walk through this world, a strategy, and then he gives us the reason. And when you adopt this strategy, it will help you recognize the reason, help you see the motivation that will help you stand firm in the Lord. So strategy and then reason. So let's do strategy first. What is Paul's strategy to stand firm? Well, listen, he begins in verse 17 by saying something he's been saying a lot in the book of Philippians, and that is this. Look at your Christian examples. Look at Christian examples. Verse 17, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Paul's talked about this a lot, right? Imitation and observation of fellow mature Christians. Remember, Paul has talked about this with the example of Jesus. He's talked about it a lot with his own example. And then even in chapter 2, verse 19, all the way down to 29, Paul talked about Timothy and Epaphroditus. Paul has been talking constantly about how the Philippians need to look at other Christians, And we, as Christians, are also no exception. We need models. We need mentors. We need older to disciple younger. And we need experience to train inexperienced. Because it is essential for seeing, receiving, and applying the truths of the gospel to have fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. But instead of just saying that again and just leaving it there, Paul immediately adds something. And what he does is he compares Christian examples to bad examples. So in verse 17, he says, imitate us and observe us. And then immediately after in verse 18, he says this, for many of whom I've often told you and now tell you with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. So what's Paul saying? Paul's explaining that you need to look at Christ's followers because there's many cross deniers out there. There are many, he says, many in this world who are enemies of the cross of Christ. You might be able to see the colorful picture that Paul is painting here. What is an enemy of the cross? An enemy of the cross is someone who denies that they need a savior. 
It's someone who denies any allegiance to God. It's someone who doesn't think they need any help, who wants to live on their own. Now, normally when this kind of subject comes up, Paul actually uses it as a warning. He says, look out for these people, stay away from them. And in a sense, Paul is still kind of talking about that because remember, we're still in chapter three. In chapter three, verse two, Paul says, look out for certain people. However, that's not Paul's main motive here because he uses a different kind of language. He's not warning us. Instead, he wants us to mourn. Paul actually says that these enemies, when you notice them, are tragic. Look what he says. I've often told you about these people, and now I remind you again with what? With tears. With tears. Paul was reminding them that there are so many people out there who have heard the message of the cross, and then they deny it. And that is sad. It is sad to see people who don't want to stand firm in the Lord. It's tragic. And verse 19, right after Paul gives you four reasons why it's so tragic. And the very first one is probably the most devastating one. Right away, Paul says, their end is destruction. Their end is destruction. The reality is that Paul is saying what they are currently doing proves where they are going. Now, Paul's not saying he's a mind reader, and he's not telling us to be those kinds of people. He's not saying you could look at someone and then suddenly know their destiny, heaven or hell. Humans are complicated. We do all sorts of things we don't want to do. Even Christians do things that we don't want to do, like sin. Paul talks about that in Romans chapter 7. But the reality is that we have patterns. And whether these enemies of the cross of Christ are obvious about their denial of Christ, or whether they say that they are following Christ, the reality is that their destiny is determined by what they're desiring, what they're devoted to, and what they delight in. And Paul actually mentions three more things to show you how it's obvious that their end is destruction. Look at the second thing he points out. Their God is their belly, which means they live for pleasure. That's their greatest desire. That's what they want most. Their impulses and their responses are controlled by what feels good right now. Whatever feels comfortable and pleasurable, that controls their life. That's their highest good. And the next one follows right after it. They glory in their shame. They enjoy what is dishonorable, what is shameful, And that shame idea is huge because that is the first feeling that we got when we got kicked out of the garden. Adam and Eve ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and what? They felt shame. But these people don't feel that. They don't feel that moral wrongness because they've been patterning their lives for so long after what feels good, that that has become what is good. Their morals have followed after their selfish, self-centered desires. And so the very fourth thing that Paul mentions actually sums up the mindset of these enemies of the cross, what makes their lifestyle so tragic and so sad. And it's this, that their minds are set on earthly things. They're worldly. They love this world. That's why they deny the cross. 
That's why they don't want help, because they don't want to leave this world. They want to soak up everything it has to offer and abandon anything else that would take them away from it. You know, according to commentators, a lot of people debate who these enemies of the cross are. Some people say that they're former Christians who have given up on Jesus and have walked away from the faith. Other people say that they're the people from the beginning of chapter 3. They're the Judaizers, people who liked to obey the law more than they wanted to obey Jesus. But the reality is it doesn't actually matter which one you think it is because Paul is telling you why their life is so tragic and is such an issue. It's because everything about their life is about living for themselves and living for this world. They have earthly minds. And the reason it's helpful to bring up both of those kinds of people is because you can look a lot of different ways to live this way. These kind of people could be the partiers, people chasing experiences, chasing moments, chasing social media moments or doing what the influencers do or being influenced by them. It could be those people. Or it could also be the person who stays up till 2 a.m. studying. It could be that person, the person who is only thinking about being respected, only thinking about their most immediate future, only thinking about a future in which they are comfortable and secure. Both of those people have the same problem. Live for now, live for me. It's the same problem. And the language that the New Testament talks about these people shows how tragic this is, that many love the gospel of the world and are therefore blinded from seeing the gospel of the glory of Christ, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 4. that many are captured by the devil to do his will, 2 Timothy 2, 26. Or as Paul says in Ephesians 2, 13, these many people are those who have no hope and are without God in this world. So what is Paul's strategy for you to stand firm in the Lord? In verses 17, 18, and 19, it's this. Observe life and lifestyles around you. Look at how people live because they're living for one of two things. They're living for tomorrow or they're living for eternity. Those are your two options. And when you notice how they're living, respond appropriately. If they're living for eternity, imitate them. If they're living for tomorrow, mourn them. The spiritually observant person will do this throughout their life. They will recognize that when someone talks to them and says, I feel fulfilled, I feel fulfilled, I love what I'm doing, that does not mean they're truly living. Just because they're having life experience, just because they're having Instagrammable experiences that they say everyone should have, that doesn't mean they're truly living. Or just because they're doing everything to climb the ladder of success, just because they seem to have exactly what a respectable life should have, just because they're achieving all sorts of things that seem respectable, that doesn't mean that they're living life right. Both of those things could be, if that's your ultimate goal, a tragic distraction from what life is actually about. Because God has designed us for so much more. And the reality is, when you observe the tragic life of people who aren't thinking about forever, you need to compare their lives to the cross. 
We need to recognize why life in the cross should feel so different. Because a life in the cross is a life in Jesus. It's a life that is both true life and longs for eternal life to come. Jesus says in John 10.10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. And you might, in light of our text, add distract. The thief comes to distract. And then Jesus says, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. And notice the last term, abundantly. Jesus is generous in giving life. Think of how radically that changed Paul. Because by earthly standards, it didn't look good for him. He was in prison. He was in chains. He couldn't see all the people he loved. He was being falsely accused. And yet, what's his attitude? Well, what's the theme of this epistle? He's joyful. He's so joyful, even in those circumstances. Why? Because he's in Jesus. He's not pretending to have joy. He has joy because he has union with Christ. And that's the reality of the gospel. Only Jesus gives real life, purpose, satisfaction, joy, hope. And one of the reasons Paul could prove that is because as other people imitated and observed him, it was infectious. They had joy. It's probably one of the reasons the Philippian church was so mature. But here's the ultimate thing you have to do. If you're going to go around observing the life of enemies of the cross, and if you're going to go and observe and then imitate godly people, there's still one person you got to start with, and that's yourself. You have to observe yourself. You have to ask yourself, is this me? Have I noticed my own desire to love this world and the things of this world? 1 John 2.15. Because I don't need to convince you something's wrong with this world. I don't even need to convince you that there's something wrong with you. Because I know there's something wrong with me too. We live in a world that is so desperate for meaning, but going everywhere else to find it except for Jesus. And Jesus is the only one who promises a better life, not a tragic life that is stuck in wickedness and deceit and depression and dissatisfaction and enslavement to sin and eventually ending in judgment. And I need to ask, is that my life? And the reason you can tell is just ask yourself, what is the ultimate end of your life? Is it you and getting what you want or is it Christ and giving him what he wants? We lose life when we're the center of meaning. We lose life. And therefore, we need to start looking outside of us. That's kind of the question that all of this points to. Where do we go? If that's me, whether I'm a non-Christian, whether I don't know Christ and I need to find life in him, or whether I am in Christ, but I'm stuck in worldliness, I'm just so stuck thinking about tomorrow and not eternity. Well, if you need a place to begin, C.S. Lewis has a good quote to spur us on to right thinking. He says this, If I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, then the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. I was made for another world. And you can remember another world, the world we want to get to, if you just keep the ending in mind. If you know the ending of your life, 
it will change the attitude of how you're living now. Raise your hand if you've seen the movie Toy Story 3. A lot of you. So you guys probably know how it ends. Raise your hand. So someone yell it out. Good ending or bad ending? What? Sad ending? So is it like, oh, sad, or is it like kind of happy? Okay, anyway. So that was a failure, but that's okay. So listen, regardless of how you thought in the end, what the ending was of that movie, I saw a clip of something really funny that happened when two boys showed their mom that movie. So without having seen the movie, um, they took Toy Story 3 and they edited it. They put it in a film editor and they ended it at the point when the toys are in the dump and they're about to go into the fire. And it looks like the bad guy won. So all the toys, like the bad guy kind of throws them in a dump and they're almost about to die. And in the movie, they end up getting saved. Spoiler alert. They end up getting saved. But right before they do, they're holding hands and they're about to go into the fire. And then the sons cut the movie right there. And then it just goes into the credits. And there's a very somber, very, very somber version of You've Got a Friend in Me playing. And mom's like, what? That's it? And their boys are like, I know, isn't it so sad? And they just left it right there. They just left it. And so for a whole 24 hours, a whole 24 hours, the mom just thought that was the saddest movie ever. So then, of course, like, next day, they're all sitting down, and mom is still talking about it. She's like, that is so awful. That is the worst. What a terrible movie. And she's like, are they going to make another one? Because how can it end? She's just trying to ration it out, you know? And then finally, of course, other people are watching, and they start laughing. She says, what is it? And the boys confess, that's not the real ending. We'll show you the real ending. And the mom had two attitudes right away. One of it is she's like, you're terrible, sons. Right away. That's the first attitude. But you know what the second attitude was? It was relief. It was like, oh, thank goodness. Thank goodness it's a good ending. And you know what the reality is? If we feel that way about a movie, about toys, that's so obviously not real. How could you not feel that way about your own life? Seriously, how many people out there are so comfortable living life absolutely unsure about how it's going to end? Totally unsure. And yet, what has Jesus told us to secure our attitudes now that we can live joyfully and with relief? It's this, you know the ending. You know the ending. And that should change your attitude. And that's actually where Paul goes in verses 20 and 21. He says this, here is your reason to stand firm. Verses 20 and 21, our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. The reason you can stand firm now is because you have future hope. Look at the three promises that are tucked away in those two sentences. Paul actually gives you three promises for what your future in Christ entails. Number one, you're not from here. We're not from here. Look at the language he uses. Our citizenship is in heaven. Colossians chapter 1 verse 13. Christ has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. 
Translation, you are going to heaven because Jesus has given you a heavenly passport. Everywhere you go, no nation, no country in this world can take that away from you. You are bound for heaven. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 5. According to Christ's great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Notice the language that Peter used there. A living hope. Translation, your citizenship in heaven one day should affect your life right now. It should affect your life right now. Don't live like your primary identity is being American or any other nation. That's not who you are. You are in Christ. And that should affect how you speak, the laws you obey, and the privileges you know you have. Number two promise, we don't want here. We don't want here. Paul is telling you your attitude as a Christian, and it's this. You await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. You're homesick. You want the king to come back. Because you know, my best life is not right now. My best life is yet to come. I don't need to waste my days trying to make my days on earth the greatest day of my life. Because one day Jesus is coming back and that will be the greatest day of my life and it will continue on into eternity. Jesus is coming back. And if you're in Christ, he's coming back for you. He knows your name, he knows your heart, and he's making these promises to you. He's coming to complete the incomplete love that we have for him now and complete it forever. And that's the third promise he gives. We don't end here. We don't end here because we will be transformed. Our lowly body will be like his glorious body. He's going to complete us. He's going to complete you if you're in Christ. And to clarify, that's not just externally. It's not like he's just going to get rid of all my scars and moles and make me look like Brad Pitt. That's not the point of this. He's saying he's going to complete the inside of you. Listen to what Jonathan Edwards once said about this. He said this, Our hearts one day will be full of love. The love which was in our heart on earth was just a grain of a mustard seed, but in heaven it will be a great tree. The soul that is in this world that only has a little spark of divine love in it, in heaven one day it shall be turned into a bright and ardent flame like the sun in its full brightness, which has no spot upon it. Think how good it will be to love Jesus one day without distractions, without hypocrisy, without guilt, without restriction, without shame. Think about how good that day will be because we'll be perfected when he wipes away all sin and replaces it with a perfectly sincere desire to love and worship him forever. That's your reason to stand firm. That's your reason to never give up on the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. So just to reiterate for you, listen, standing firm means this. You have a strategy. You live observing life around you. And whether it's Christians or non-Christians, it starts pointing you towards a better world. And then number two, you remember that reason 
why you can stand firm, which is that eternity is coming. I don't need to live for this world because a better one is coming when I'm going to be with Jesus. So I'm going to live for that day and invest in that day and not this day. Now listen, sometimes I know when we talk about these kinds of things, they might sound good and appealing and encouraging, but sometimes they don't sound very practical. They seem a little abstract. So I want to give you quickly three applications, three ways that you can start having this message applied in your life. And we're low on time, so I'm going to try and run through these. So number one, remember eternity daily. Remember eternity daily. And what I mean is wake up in the morning thinking about eternity. Because the moment you wake up, we give into our routines. We think about what's the first thing I got to do. I got to get ready for school. I got to get ready for that practice or rehearsal I have. And right away, we're settling for less. Not that it's wrong to do the things you have to do, but it's how you do them. The philosopher Soren Kierkegaard, he once said this, the greatest hazard of all, which is losing yourself, can occur so quietly in this world as if it were nothing at all. Every other loss, like losing an arm or a leg or losing five bucks or losing your wife, you notice all of those things, but you never notice losing yourself because it happens so quietly. That's what happens to us. That's worldliness. We wake up and we forget the importance of Jesus. But when you meditate on your future first thing in the morning, that day is different. This is what I mean. What would it look like if the first thing when you woke up was either a post-it note by your bed or the title of your alarm that just says, I want the world to end? You're like, what? Just to get you thinking. And what I really mean is something that tells you, I want Jesus to come back. I want Jesus to fix everything. I'm living for eternity. Here's two ways you could redefine this. One is silly and one is a little bit better. So here's the silly one. Future hope creates present hype. You know hype like excitement? Future hope creates present hype. You'll be excited about today when you know what eternity is going to be like. So that's the silly one. Here's the better one. Future expectation redefines what is excellent. So when you know that certain things will last for eternity and other things won't, that will define what you should be doing. And when the first thing in the morning is that kind of thinking, radically redefines the day. Not necessarily what you do, but your attitude and how you do it. Application number two, application number two, change your expectations. And what I mean is change what you expect out of a day. Because when you wake up, you have expectations. You want to do things. You want to get things. You want time with friends. You want good moments, a good laugh. You want Clash Royale. I'm going to keep talking about Clash Royale until you guys play another game. You guys have been playing Clash Royale for like a year, which is fine. All of those things, actually are totally fine. But you know what the problem with those things are? You know when they become a problem? When everything you want is about instant gratification. And so much of what we want, it's just instant gratification. And that makes us settle whether a day is good or bad based on us getting what we want. That's a worldly way to think about living. That's a worldly way to organize your day. And there's a way you can kill that. There's a way you can kill that kind of worldliness. 
Think about it. Here's two things you could tell yourself to change your expectations for how a day should look. Here's one thing. Number one, I'm going to want something today that I shouldn't want, and I need to reject it. So I'm not trusting every desire, everything I want in life, because today I'm going to want something that I shouldn't want, and I need to say no to it. Here's another way you could do it. You could wake up saying, today I'm going to want something I won't get, and that's okay, because life is disappointing. Disappointment is a part of life. I'm going to want something today, and I won't get it, and that's okay. Now, I know both of those might sound kind of sad, but it's very important that you get this, because both of those are giving you an attitude to stop making a day good because of you. And a day starts being good because you get to do what God wants you to do. Or you start responding to things the way God wants you to respond to them. That you start thinking about what's valuable because it pleases God who you're going to be with and worship for eternity. That's how you change the expectations of your day. You think God is going to give me a moment where I can honor him and that's what I want to do more than anything anyways. Change your expectations. And number three is very simple. Live with the body. Live with the body. Philippians chapter 1 verse 27. Paul says, I want to hear that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Guys, don't make Sunday morning your least favorite day. Don't make Sunday your least favorite day. Don't let Sunday morning have a backseat in what you want and where you want to be. Maximize that time. Observe, watch, listen, pray, pay attention, be equipped. Don't fall asleep during the pastoral prayer. Don't waste your Sunday. Use the time that you've been given to get what God wants you to give every Sunday morning, which is this, hope. God is equipping you with hope every Sunday. And you know what's one reason you know that you're maximizing a Sunday? It's not just that you're getting hope, but you want other people to get hope. You need to live with the body because that's how you get motivation to evangelize people, that they would be part of the body. That's how Paul begins this in verse 17. Imitate me, keep your eyes on other people who follow our examples because many people out there are going to hell. And you're going to want to tell them about Christ who saves all of us from hell if you maximize a Sunday morning. Seriously, if you maximize a Sunday morning, you're going to get the hope you need to fill your own heart with assurance in Christ and to motivate you towards evangelism. Because as Spurgeon once said, nobody's going to heaven alone. Nobody's going to heaven alone. Let me conclude with this. I want you to notice in verse 21, when Paul says that Jesus is going to transform us one day, he says this, we're going to be transformed by the power that enables Jesus to subject all things to himself. So this is how I want to end this. The power that will raise you to perfection one day is empowering you today. That's what Paul's trying to get at. Romans chapter 6, verses 5 and 8. We have been united with Christ in a death like his, and we will certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. And he's not talking about future resurrection. He's talking about current resurrection. Because look what he says next. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that this body of sin might be brought to nothing so we would no longer be enslaved to sin. 
because you're gonna be raised to dead from the dead one day, Christ can raise you to greater and greater life today. Therefore, standing firm in the Lord is not about the standing firm part. It's not about you and what you're doing. It's about who you're looking at to do it for you. It's standing firm in the Lord. It's about Christ's power, whom you are standing firm in. If you want to stand firm in the Lord, it's not just based on your powers of observation. It's not just on your righteousness and your discipline. It's on keeping your eyes on Christ. When you keep your eyes on Christ, you're going to want to be with him forever. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Keep looking at the surpassing beauty of Christ and he will keep you standing strong until he comes again.